As far as like my radical dream, I think that would be healthcare that is accessible and affordable and equitable for everyone and making sure also that we are seeing more underrepresented individuals in public health and in medicine, especially in terms of the many disadvantaged communities and marginalized communities that we have in the U.S. They're going to be best catered to with individuals from those same communities. Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hi y'all, this is Christine, Creative Director for Foundation for Liberating Minds, and I will be hosting Dream Radically today. On today's episode, Inequity for All, we are joined by Columbia Public Health student, Mareba Fawad, who will be imparting her insight into public health inequities and minority health experiences, especially regarding the repercussions of COVID-19 and her dream for change. Hello, we are so happy to have you today. Mareba, I just want you to introduce yourself and maybe let the audience know just a little bit about you and what exactly your radical dream is. Hello, Christine. It's so nice to see you and be on the podcast today. So like Christine mentioned, my name is Mareba Fawad. I'm a first-year student at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. There I'm studying um, health policy and management. I recently graduated from the University of Oklahoma with degrees in history of science and psychology. So I'm using all that and ready to dive into public health. As far as like my radical dream, I think that would be in terms of like America, it would definitely be like healthcare that is accessible and affordable and equitable for everyone and making sure also that we are seeing more underrepresented individuals in public health and in medicine, especially in terms of like the many disadvantaged communities and marginalized communities that we have in the U.S., they're going to be best catered to with individuals from those same communities, you know, to a certain level, individuals with privilege or opportunities and luxuries in life, like even if they are in public health or medicine, they won't have that same level of empathy, regardless of whether you come from a place where, where you want to be empathetic, you know, there is that certain level of individual lived experience that really adds to being able to really serve your own communities and really help bring them up as well. And so building on that, was there a moment or a story maybe that really sparked that dream for you? Yeah, so I definitely think um, growing up in Canada and having access to that single payer model within each province and really seeing that in Ontario, the province that I lived in, I got to see the luxuries of a healthcare system that was accessible and affordable. It was like basically having a library card as easy as walking into the library, swiping it, sitting there for a couple minutes and then getting your care and walking out. There wasn't that hassle at the end where you were sitting and waiting to pay your bill, walking through insurance, talking to that special receptionist that specializes in different insurance types or Um, handing out bills of hundreds so you can afford the care that you just received, you know. And it was when I came to America that I I truly understood how much of a blessing that really was. And when I got to truly see how, like, 
we had to like ration out medication and, and make medication last or make sure that we weren't seeing the doctor as much. And honestly, that results in poorer health outcomes for a lot of individuals. And this isn't like an individual story. It's it's a story of many Americans, you know, it's it's one that a lot of them struggle with. And although my dream is radical per se, I think it shouldn't be. It's it's doing the bare minimum for America compared to counterparts in Canada, Australia, Germany, even like Pakistan, my home country, they have a very robust trans health bill, giving out health ID cards to trans individuals to improve access to health care for them. I think in America, it seems more so radical because we've just become accustomed to it, but it shouldn't be. For sure. And definitely a dream that I think a lot of people have opened up their eyes to more recently in light of COVID-19 and all the circumstances in healthcare and health equity that is carried with it. And so I would like to transition into maybe why you have this dream. So you've talked a little bit about what it is, but I think just to cover a basis for the audience, let's talk about what exactly is public health inequity and and why does it exist today? So I think to properly address this question, it's really important to understand the difference between inequity versus equality. I think a lot of people get them confused and rightfully so because they sound so similar. And uh, so there's that really well-known image that really helps describe inequity and inequality. Um, It's one that I think a lot of us have seen and it's three individuals standing by a fence and the first is like a grown man and he can very easily look at the baseball game happening past the fence. Then there's an adolescent kid who's standing on one box so that he can see over the fence. And then there's a little kid who is standing but he has to stand on three boxes to be able to see over the fence to see the baseball game. And so um, that picture is meant to describe what is equity. However, from my experience, I really think that is a racist image and it's very outdated, actually. Um, Oftentimes, a lot of people think that's a good image to show equity. They're like, okay, we're making sure that all three individuals can see over to that baseball game. But what's actually happening is that all these three individuals are not the same size, neither are they the same age. So first of all, when you're applying this to especially minoritized communities like the African-American community, the Native community, especially in healthcare, the Hispanic community as well, you are then assuming that they are not the same amount as human as the one who is larger. You know, you're setting them up on a different basis, exactly. And when you are even looking at the boxes that you are setting up, we have systemic racism and institutional racism. So it's the ground you are even walking on that's going to be different. So for Mm. these individuals, I think a better image would have been is maybe that there's a hole underneath. So you can't really see what's going on, that sort of thing. It's not about just the resources you're getting or the privileges, it's, it's about the systemic discrimination as well. And so in terms of public health, health inequities essentially is, is like a difference in like health status and the distribution of resources and the institutional makeup of a lot of health systems in America and even systems outside of that. Essentially to answer your question of why they exist, it's because of the unequal distribution of income, power, wealth, And that all leads to the marginalization of individuals and groups. And specific examples of this is like redlining, the historic distrust of communities, proximity of care for a lot of individuals, food deserts, 
a lot of even like social aspects really contribute to this sort of public health inequity. Especially in light of recent events, COVID-19, I, I would really love to discuss with you and hear your opinions and perspectives on the status of specifically minority and marginalized communities, their public health, um, nationally within Oklahoma, maybe even internationally. What has that looked like for you from your point of view? Especially like in Oklahoma, we were already starting in a place of mass discrepancies within the healthcare system. I remember one statistic that always shocks me. It was done by a partnership between like the health department, University of Tulsa, and the George Kaiser Family Foundation. And the program was known as Narrowing the Gap. And essentially what they found there was that individuals in South Tulsa, in a certain zip code, they lived to almost 81 years. Whereas individuals that lived in North Tulsa, their average life expectancy was 67 years. That was initially like an age gap of 13.8 some years. And eventually they were able to narrow that gap down to 10.7 years as of like 2019. But that shows you that depending on where you live in America as well, you have massive discrepancies in life expectancy. And, and that's because of varying factors, like I was mentioning, you know, it's the factors that are social, educational, environmental, and all these different things. There's also pollutants in the environment for individuals in certain zip codes that further add to their life expectancy. And, and there was that case of a little African-American girl and um, the autopsy reported that her cause of death was because of environmental factors, because she was inhaling all these toxins and sorts of things. And that was like a true like non-medical cause of death. And so simple things like that in Oklahoma that have historically are, are now exacerbated with COVID-19. I, I think our state also doesn't have a lot of funding compared to other states. We are running out of PPE. I, I know um, my brother is an EMT. And so even simple stories that he tells me are astonishing. He works in Midwest City and he had to drive two hours to find a hospital to take a patient because hospitals are filled. And these are realities I think that a lot of individuals don't really realize. We hear them, but when it's close to us, it, it hits a little different. When you're like, oh, you were on a two-hour ambulance ride going at what speed to make sure this individual gets the care they need to get. And so it's really interesting to look at, especially because public health experiences, although for minorities are like very low, I think it's also very telling because individuals that are immigrants that come over to America, it's, it's known as the immigrant paradox is what this is called. And so when individuals um, immigrate over to America, they typically have much better health than those who are well-integrated immigrants, especially you see this within like the Hispanic community, Hispanic individuals that recently immigrate versus have been here for years have better health than them. And initially you're like, why would that be? That doesn't make sense. You know, you're like, okay, Immigrants typically are trying to come to America to find a better life. You know, that a narrative of like the American dream is, is very big. And so I think what's interesting here is, is that it is because of, again, the access to health care that becomes so, so difficult when you're looking at immigrants here in America. They receive lower quality of health. They don't get access to federal food assistance programs and a lot of these other social factors that they then aren't really receiving that really affects their health. And so actually their health declines here. And so with COVID, again, everything is becoming much worse. 
people can't afford to buy as many groceries. Unemployment is very minimal at this point. A lot of people aren't able to get the unemployment that they need to get, and all of this affects health. We've kind of introduced this topic and the why behind it. And so now I kind of want to talk about how you realize this dream. So maybe some of the personal public health experiences you've seen from Oklahoma and maybe from learning at Columbia and how that has kind of shaped your perspective on public health now. Definitely living in Oklahoma shaped my perspective in public health differently than my classmates. Oftentimes I notice I am trying to really address disparities within the Native community that really a lot of students just glance over. And that's because, you know, Oklahoma is such a large Native population and, you know, the entire history of the Trail of Tears and that sort of thing is something that's really important to Oklahoma's history. And, and you really learn about how horrific that was for the Native community to have just one piece of land set out for them and have to um, migrate all over America to make it here. And so I think those sorts of aspects and living in also an area that is considered much more rural. And so knowing a lot of friends that live out in places where they're like, I have to send out literal coordinates for an ambulance to find me. It's not an address, you know. And so things like that really have shaped my perspective when when I then bring in my ideas into Columbia. But what Columbia has really taught me is how the intersectional nature of public health and truly how the deep systemic ways that health has discriminated against minorities and even like the public health sector itself in America, the U.S. government has, has done massive atrocities to lose the trust of minorities as well. And so um, I, I think it's a fascinating place for me to really bridge the gap of my personal experience and add that to the conversation, but also learn from fellow students who come from many other places. I have classmates that are doctors in Myanmar, and they have fascinating perspectives that they bring in. I, um, I know friends that were a part of the army at one point in Germany. There, there's so many ideas that then accumulate there. And, and when we are able to have a conversation about health, it goes beyond the U.S. oftentimes. And we're able to pull on the good things that other countries have done and say, hey, okay, Australia's system is very similar to the U.S. and how it's set up with public and private care. And so we're like, okay, let's, let's draw comparisons from there. And maybe America can learn from that. Because I think like the quickest go-to for a lot of us is just like, okay, Canada, like that's what we'll compare it to. And we want that to be the ideal of health. But with how the U.S. is set up, like single payer models or universal healthcare is not really feasible. So looking to other countries like that and in a classroom setting, being able to talk about has been amazing. With your learning experience, has there been maybe any statistics or research that's come up that have really expanded that view that you've had on health inequity and the disparities that kind of exist within the modern day healthcare system. Definitely. Um, in light of the George Floyd protests and the massive civil rights movement that we're having now and should have been addressed much earlier, it's astonishing that these issues still persist, I think, as many of us have come to truly realize or now really open our eyes to. And so I think simple things like African-Americans are uninsured at a much higher rate than um, their white counterparts. So that is 
10.6% to 5.9%. And simple things like that, where, where you look at the numbers, and, and they really speak for themselves. You look at maternal mortality for African American women, you look at the rate of PAP testing for South Asian women in America, oftentimes they're much more hesitant because of cultural norms and um, that sort of thing, and which is fascinating because per the population of Asians in America, and especially how many go into medicine, you would expect to see a lot more of them getting PAP testing, um, uh, breast cancer screenings, and that sort of stuff. But Again, these are complex systems where we're trying to make sure we we leverage um, individuals in the community with patients that really need to seek that care and finding ways to bridge that gap. Even as far as like medical schools, I I think it honestly starts from there in undergrad. We're looking at individuals who are even able to get into medical school, individuals that have to have a full-time job make sure that they graduate on time with a certain number of credits. They can't always volunteer to the degree that some medical schools would want, you know. Some individuals can't really take that time off from a job to study for the MCAT. Also, affording medical school or even paying the fees of classes, of books, even like prep workshops, you know, we've always heard of that student that's like, oh yeah, I paid for a $2,000 Kaplan course and I'm all set and just the privilege that that holds. And then of course, then you have a certain type of individual getting into medical school that has much more opportunity and privilege. Um, And so it's really, really important that I think medical schools are, some medical schools are doing a better job of this now um, where they are making it free to attend. So once you get in, it's then free. And then that removes a lot of the pressure to then go into a specialty and even then decide to attend medical school because you're like, okay, I don't have to worry about that crippling debt. I don't have to work or find loans that are going to essentially ruin my financial prospects later. And typically what um, statistics have found is also that individuals of color are more likely to serve in underserved areas. So they're more likely to be physicians and doctors in those areas that we really, really need them. And they're also more likely to be primary care physicians, which is something that is truly declining. We need more of, um, especially in healthcare deserts that we have in America. I did air quotes there for the podcast folks. (laughs) So very necessary. Yes. Um, So those healthcare deserts where oftentimes a pharmacist has to serve the role of being a physician. And so, you know, you walk up to your pharmacist and you're like, oh, hey, I got this skin thing. What do I put on it? Because there's no doctors there. There's there's no physician there that's truly accessible in that area. And so I, I truly think these statistics speak for themselves in understanding not only the gravity of the risk that a lot of these communities have, but also who is then serving these communities. A lot of these communities want to see their own individuals helping them out because they understand, like I was mentioning earlier. And that's something that's important. I think medical schools are working towards, but so much more work needs to be done, especially with, again, how I was saying everything that's going on in the U.S. and should have happened a long time ago. Um, I, I remember the AMA released a statement about racism being a public health crisis. And I was like, yeah, it's about time you acknowledge it, but what are we going to do about it? Like a statement doesn't do anything. I read through the statement and it had very vague aims for the future. And I was like, from the AMA, and for those who don't know, that's the American Medical Association, to just have that statement doesn't do anything really. 
if racism is truly a public health crisis and is something that needs to be addressed by them as well, I think there's better ways to work towards that and maybe have some more actionable items. Maybe they're like, oh, we're going to forgive debt for students that serve in this sort of area. And I know there's smaller programs like that, but um, it would have been nice to see something um, that was a bit more robust in that sense and not just do mouth service because we've known, we've known this is a public health issue. It's a crisis, actually. That's a great transition into what does this dream look like in reality? We've talked about, you know, why it exists You've talked about what you've seen, what you've learned that's really shown the true disparity and the true inequality and inequity that exists in the way that people are treated and the way that people are cared for here in America and also across the world and especially here in Oklahoma. And so that's a great way to walk into the discussion of what can be done to move towards human public health security for all. What does that look like? Ideally, I would hope that the government would be able to step up a bit more and really help us move the needle towards that security, you know. But again, government change is slow. It takes time. Oftentimes, the funding becomes an issue, and it's always um, a battle to truly happen. But again, we need to persist and make sure that we hold our government accountable. Um, That's something that's really, really important. And in the meantime, while that's happening, I think this is where... Um, We can have NGOs and a lot of different programs really step in and make sure that they can create community-based targeted interventions towards the individuals that are more at risk. And I say community-based, and I want to highlight that really, because we want to make sure that the individuals in the community are involved in this process. This is not public health practitioners, doctors, or other social workers going in and telling them, hey, this is what we think you need. So so this is what we're going to give you. It's making sure that we were asking the community also, what do they want? What issues have they been seeing? Because oftentimes what we see is that individuals come into disadvantaged minoritized communities and they're like, here, this is what we think you need, this is what we think you want, and you're all set. But all these communities are just sitting there and, and they're like, we haven't been consulted. You didn't ask us what we needed. There's also really great ways to um, leverage community leaders. Oftentimes there's preachers and um, other individuals like social activists within communities that these communities really revere and um, look up to. And so making sure that those individuals are really part of the conversation as well and ensuring that communication back and forth. Because if you're coming in from an outside perspective, you can't communicate with that community as well as someone who is within the community that you're working with. And so I think that is a really good way to work towards human public health security for all. Um, I think it's these programs and nonprofits that really can play a pivotal role during the transition period until when the government can really step in and step up because that needs to happen, but um, I'm not sure when, but I'm still hopeful. (laughs) Those are definitely areas where we need people who understand the places where the intervention is supposed to be happening. And so what are some holes maybe or some gaps within the current health system that you feel like should be addressed through these interventions or should be addressed through these efforts to kind of fight against the current state of health inequity? Um, There are many holes. So it would be hard to list all of the issues with the American system (laughs) as of thus far. Um, But I think 
COVID really highlighted a lot of them for many of us. And I think to kind of look at it through a COVID lens, especially with everything going on now, um, would be best because we completely mishandled COVID-19 from inconsistent lockdowns to a lack of transparency, limited PPE, further exacerbated health disparities. Um, there was a lot happening and even simple things such as the managing system where we are submitting this COVID data. We have literal clinics or de health departments like getting faxes of information that's backfiled. It's not even digital at that point. Like we should not have a system that's so broken that way. Um, a lot of other countries have had their counterpart to CDC work, work with their homeland security to then cross-reference who's been out of the country and who to target test towards and follow up with them and call them up. And um, that working between departments is something that I don't think we've really seen to the degree that we can. And hopefully that is something that's possible. But I, I really hope that there are lessons that public health practitioners and even wider like um, individuals that work in health, especially in the government, can take away from this. Um, even as far as like making sure that America is producing more PPE. I remember I was listening to this interview earlier on where there was a PPE manufacturer in America and he kept telling everyone, he's like, please buy this PPE, invest in our company, we will need more, we are outsourcing it too much to other countries like China. And if there is a pandemic or anything does happen, we are going to be stuck paying for high prices and waiting too long to get PPE. And so I remember in that interview, he was like, okay, and the interviewer asked him, he's like, so how do you feel now that you've been crying to the wolves and finally it's come true? He's like, horrific that it's come true because it's real. Um, and, and it's like there are individuals that are doing great work and have been saying that, hey, we, we, we have these holes. We need to fix them before an issue happens. And I think it's time to listen to those individuals, those scientists, those individuals that are part of the healthcare field that truly know the depth of these issues and how to prevent them for the next time. And on the topic of COVID-19, um, I wanted to talk with you about an issue I think that is very prevalent right now and um, will become more relevant as more people get vaccinated. But I thought maybe you could kind of talk about the relationships between healthcare and marginalized communities currently and how this is affecting the vaccination uptake response currently. There's so many factors that play into the vaccinating of uh, marginalized individuals. Like I was mentioning, that historic distress from the Tuskegee syphilis trials to the Guatemalan trials to Kennedy Krieger, we have done our minoritized communities much wrong. And so I think that even coupled with the fact that even there's quite a few physicians that I know of that are hesitant as well. This vaccine hesitancy goes beyond just these minority communities because they were already hesitant in the first place with a lot of medical care and especially outsiders coming in and saying, hey, this is something we're giving you. And so I, I think when you are then seeing a lot of other individuals who aren't just minoritized being hesitant and even your regular neighbor who's like, hey, I'm not really sure about that vaccine. Have you heard about that? They said they got some nanobots or something in there. And so people are all confused and they're like, what's going on? They don't understand that um, it's not as scary as it seems. But 
I think at this point, we're really going to see how this plays out because right now we're currently vaccinating those who are in patient-facing positions mostly or those who are elderly and really at risk. So it hasn't trickled down yet far enough to the regular individual in um, around a community. So we're not really seeing that go that far. But I think, again, it's really important to make sure we educate individuals and make sure they're aware. A lot of them are afraid about how quick this was done. And I think that's not just the marginalized individuals, uh, um, as we were mentioning, I think that's just everyone. They're like, oh, that was really quick. But it's important to remember that also our sample size is much larger for COVID than any other vaccine or the potential flu vaccine. Uh, the flu vaccine is just like, we're guessing what strain is going to be coming. Um, this is, we know the strain, millions of people in the world have had it. So, and it hasn't changed until um, recently in England, but we're, we're going to put that to the side. <laughs> hopefully that <laughs> doesn't come to issue. America. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. So hopefully that doesn't come in. But I mean, they originally modified the SARS and MERS vaccine that they had. So it's not like we're starting from scratch. We've, we've had bases of this vaccine. It's just we're modifying this for COVID because SARS-CoV-2 is not new. It's, it's a strain. It's, it's a zoonotic strain of the SARS virus, essentially. We've had other outbreaks of it before. So we're working off of the older ones and modifying that is essentially what's happening. And so I think that sort of information is important for everyone so that there isn't that vaccine hesitancy. But I think it's bound to happen, especially with a lot of the misinformation around. So I think it goes up to all levels. A lot of people are hesitant and rightfully so with the CDC retracting certain messages that they put out. So, so it does make people hesitant. And I acknowledge that. And I think it's important for a lot of us to make sure that we are educating individuals about how to best get vaccinated, essentially, and trust the process. On top of that, what else do you feel like maybe listeners can do to join you in the stream of battling public health inequity and to to address it and educate on it? What do, what do you feel like that looks like for people that are just, you know, maybe not working directly with healthcare um, or maybe not working with these issues as you are, but just they're just out there in the world listening, doing life, you know, during COVID-19. I think public health in general has become an issue we're all trying to become more aware of. And so what do you feel like they can do? This is really important because it's all about the work that the collective can do. You know, America is very an individualistic society. We like to do things on our own, keep to our own, that sort of thing. And I think that kind of speaks to why our response hasn't been the best because other individuals, they, they do value that collectivistic mindset. Um, they're like, okay, we all got to do this. Let's get through it. And although that isn't the basis of our society, I think there is much work to be done. And um, regardless of whether you're in public health or not, if you are actively working to make an impact and better your community in any way, you are making an impact on public health. Whether you are helping um, offer more food to local individuals that can't afford it, whether you are giving um, free rides for individuals around the community who maybe don't have access to vehicles or simple things like making sure that you are passing on the education that you've been given and maybe mentoring someone who is um, younger than you. Simple things like that. Education plays into health. Food plays into health. Transportation plays into health. Everything that you can think of that can possibly better your community or even an individual does play into health somehow. Even listening to a friend, simple things like that, that plays into their mental health. Um, and especially during times of COVID, um, we are seeing 
horrible rates of suicide, depression, anxiety going up. And so it doesn't have to be super complicated. It can be simple changes. And you can say, yeah, I am making a public health effort because it's all about the public. That, that's what we're trying to do. And so simple changes uh, is something that you can definitely make. And always remember, wash your hands, wear a mask, and over the nose, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and I, I love that. Public health is such a community effort. It absolutely is, 100%. Thank you so much for just kind of sharing about this dream. And I would love for you to maybe share a little bit about what your personal dream is, just what you're studying and like where you're wanting to take your public health career, maybe your master's research and thesis. Thus far, I've really loved a lot of different areas of public health that I've learned of. So I've yet to truly decide where I want to take this because there's so many different avenues. I'm leaning towards um, a policy basis thus far and want to really look into that in policy interventions that I can make on a larger scale um, and, and truly change the system in some way. Don't we all want to change the system, though? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man. The system, man. Gotta Stick get the big ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So those are some of my goals for now, but they're definitely ever-changing as we learn, you know, um, and as I learn more, I think I may want to shift somewhere else and maybe serve a community that I'm like, oh, I didn't know about that issue. I feel passionate about it now, you know? And public mm -hmm. health is so wide and expansive that um, we'll see where it goes, but I know I just love this field as it is thus far. That's so good. And we definitely need passionate individuals like yourself advocating and pushing towards the change that needs to happen. Um, and so thank you so much for sharing this dream and enlightening us a little bit about the circumstances that exist around us in public health and in COVID-19 and in general. Yeah, thank you for having me, Christine. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.